0: Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Welcome, Dale Brawham is my guest today on the Designer Maker Revolution. He's an amazing designer maker, definitely check out his website, dalebrawham.com. Big thanks to Neil Thomason for helping me out with the audio once again, really, man. Thanks Neil, been a great help, been putting heaps of effort into the audio. Really, really do hope you can hear the difference, really putting... Lot of work into that. Patreon is coming soon, as are I hope t shirts. Stay tuned for that. Without listeners, this podcast is absolutely nothing. So, thank you so much. Love the feedback. Please get in touch. Standard places Facebook, Instagram, maybe Twitter. Don't know yet. We'll see. Uh, make at maker revolution.com please welcome Dalbra home take it away Dalbra home welcome to the designer make revolution podcast Adrian thank you if you're at a party and someone asks you what you do for a living what do you say
1: I generally hem and haw for a while Uh, I'm not real comfortable talking about myself so, well, or, or what I do, but I... I you're going to have to be, okay? Uh, well, Today... Yeah, thank you. It's all about you. I eventually get there. <laughs> yeah, you'll um, be right. I say, first and foremost, that I'm a designer maker.
2: Yeah.
1: Emphasis probably on the maker side. Yeah, okay. And then I, I, I do get into the educator role, too. Yeah. So I give them the full scope, though it may come out in a convoluted way.
0: Yeah, have you always been a maker?
1: Not as a little kid. You know, played around with things, both inside outside, uh, but I wasn't really a tinker in the truest sense of the world. I think that came later, uh, teenage years, later teenage years. Maybe there's a hunger there. There's some kind of interest. So, child of the '60s, and um, I think some of the romanticism, the the rose-colored glasses or dew-eyed look towards that kind of lifestyle was appealing and just sort of stumbled haphazardly into it. I think what's the really interesting things is that crossroads, the junctures that present themselves to us throughout our lives and how we make choices both unconsciously and willingly.
0: God damn, yeah.
1: It's really interesting it's to watch It's pretty
0: that. interesting. Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, crossroads were made happen and crossroads present themselves. And I ended up here. Mm. Long path, convoluted path. Pretty uh, good place, though. I think so. I think so. I, I enjoy immensely what I'm doing. Mm. I like looking at the sort of trajectory that has brought me to this place, and it's not a trajectory that one might say, in sort of a um, business sense of you know success and the, and the metrics that people qualify through that. I think it's more about in reflection, and I'm old enough so I can, I can say I'm doing some reflecting on what I have uh, experienced in my life. Those things really are um, satisfying, uh, and
0: mm. I feel grateful for them. I think the metrics that we might think reflect success, when it comes down to it, just don't. So we're not talking financial here. I think at the end of the day, how you are with your family. Yes, have you had a lot of challenges that you've, have you done well with those challenges and made good decisions in yeah. your life? They're the metrics that I think at the end of the day those really make a difference there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's
1: always a struggle, especially in the United States, to not be bound up by the qualifiers of success. That seem mm. to permeate our society so, I, think so those, I think those i
0: think those notions of success would be pretty prevalent here
1: similar yeah sure i live in a um a community outside of boston that is affluent and success driven we moved my wife and i moved to that community when we were looking towards having kids living in the city and we're struggling with if we stay in the city which at that time was more to our our liking. Kids would either go into a private school, which is a lot of money, or they would take the chances in the public school, which could have been pretty bad at times. Uh, The resources weren't there, and so challenges just were abundant. And we chose to move to another location for the, the school system. Watching our kids go through the school system and the pressures put upon them to succeed at times was challenging. We all put those kind of pressures on ourselves, I think. Mm. But um, just watching the kind of pressures that the driven society has on kids, is distressing at times. And at times they're not able to be who they are when they're young and they should be living lives as children. So that's one of those kind of things that you struggle with.
0: For you, living in an affluent society, given that you need to find clients and all of your clients As all artists need clients, they've got to be affluent Mm -hmm. and sophisticated, Mm -hmm. have spare change to spend on other people's creative pursuits as opposed to their own. That would have been a bit of a bonus.
1: Yes, being in an affluent area of the country has been very helpful, and I think it's hard not to be in those areas. The challenges of one of the hats you wear when you are a creative person of marketing and, and selling Uh, It's easier to be in those areas than it is out in the the rural areas, the outback Mm. or something like that. Mm. And so that just helps you along. Another is the ability to connect with people and have Mm. them understand the stories you're trying to tell. Mm. So always working on that, always struggling with that, because at times the work is such that I don't want to have to tell a story, although I need to tell the story. And you just have to surmount some of these challenges that are completely self-driven. Mm. And so you then need to find those completely self-driven solutions to the problems that you're putting in front of yourself. Mm. I think it's could be a really interesting study by some doctoral candidate to look at the psych- psychological makeup of creative folks, particularly in furniture, because that's the area I know, and find out, look at and understand what makes them tick because they've mm. got so many similarities and there's the creativity is profound, but there's a destructive side to it. And What's that? well, a lot of the, a lot of my peers, a lot of the makers I know, at least in the States, if they had their way, they'd be out in a shed somewhere or in the backwoods mm. and they really wouldn't engage. They'd be in the studio and they'd just make. And the object would be finished and they moved on to the next. And that sort of uh, lifestyle is very appealing to a lot of us. But mm. you can't live that way. There's, because? Well, how do you make a living?
0: Okay.
1: Just, there's the commerce side of it that you yeah. can't ignore and many mm. try. But mm. if you can't have your work go somewhere, mm. purchased... Uh, acquired in some way shape or form Mm. how are you making a living some can do it some have a self-sustaining lifestyle that means they're doing a lot of other things but for the majority it's kind of a sole focus uh, purpose that they're going after
0: Mm. and I reckon (laughs) there's one thing to have commerce Mm. but also to be a whole human you need to perhaps explore all of that aspect so that you know if if you're just a maker Mm. It's kind of a very narrow focus. And that's not somebody who's going to be terribly interesting to talk to because there's not a whole lot of depth there. Well, I'm talking in an ideal sense here. You know sure. what I'm saying?
1: I guess when I say somebody's just a maker, uh, they're a member of a community. They are a participant in, say, a family. And life can be of many different layers. Mm. Just a maker means possibly that they're making, but they're having... They're not dealing with the other side, which is yeah. trying, trying just, to move it.
0: I was kind of imagining a person that was just involved, so super involved in just what they were doing and not getting involved in other aspects that... Fill the life out. Yeah, fill the life
1: out. Oh, those yeah. I don't
0: know too many of. <laughs> you no, know, they mean, they because, have
1: passions and pursuits, but yeah. maybe it's not the whole business package. Mm-hmm.
0: I reckon mm-hmm. also when you're making, there's a headspace that you're in when you're making, mm-hmm. and it's not a verbal space. I reckon it'd be really hard to do making and talk at the same time.
1: It is, it's a challenge. Part of being a teacher means you have some of that ability. Because when I'm in the studio, I'm in the classroom studio, and I'm demonstrating for my students, it's not sustained periods of time, days on end, but it could be a five hour stretch. Where you're talking about a process, a processes, and demonstrating the mechanisms to move through this. And so you've got to be creating and you have to be speaking Mm -hmm. at the same time. And it's, it's not rote
0: but it's because it's a fluid process yeah but i'm thinking of you're making for say six hours a day Mm -hmm. and then you've got to market you've got to go and talk tell somebody a story Mm -hmm. but your focus for a majority of your time is actually in a non-verbal space and Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you've got to go verbal in a really eloquent way that involves people and and i just think it's hard it is hard You have to be able to wear the other hats. You have Mm. to be able to
1: switch gears. Mm. You have to think on your feet, Uh, and it can be it can be cumbersome at times. It can be inelegant at times. I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people don't succeed.
2: Yeah,
1: that's that's tough. If I was to look back at my classmates when I was in college and getting my training, and those who are still in the field, it's not many.
0: Yeah, you
1: know, class of twenty, maybe it's three. Yeah, wow. Did you go to RISD? Did you try? I did not go to RISD. I went to yeah. Evergreen State College, which uh-huh. I happen to wear in a sweatshirt. You are. Right now. Um, I went there to state school uh, in Washington State, in the capital, Olympia, Washington. Right. And uh, I had no particular focus at the time. It was one of the crossroads. When I decided to go to college, I was. I graduated from high school a year early, 17 years old. I left home. Uh, I went out and worked different places, traveled, and I was crossing the country. And um, a friend of mine from high school happened to be living out in Washington State, ended up with him. And he had decided that he was going to college for a variety of different reasons. And I thought, well, maybe this is something I should do too, Uh, give it a go. It had been a couple of years went down to this college looked at it seemed interesting it was based Mm -hmm. on interdisciplinary learning so your core of studies was one class one semester period and that would encompass everything english uh sciences mathematics would all be incorporated in one one series of studies and that seemed to be my liking so i i i enrolled the course of study I wanted to do was an outdoor education, because I had an interest and passion yeah, right. in, in the outdoors.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Class was filled, couldn't do that. And yeah, yeah. And it would have been really interesting <laughs> to see where that would have gone. So the other option was a um, marine studies program.
0: Well, that's a bit different than what we...
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I had an interest in making it as it was. So I yeah, dabbled yeah, a little yeah. on my own, but mm. nothing formal. I really had yeah. read some as before YouTube and all that, so I yeah, hadn't had yeah. anything to watch, but mm. um, just kind of was playing around. No, no, uh, no strong training at that point. And the Marine Studies was a class that was based on building, constructing a 38-foot uh, sailing research vessel.
0: Yeah, okay, so when I think of Marine Studies, I think, oh, you're just going to go diving and look at fish? No,
1: well, it? that could have been part of it. Yeah, okay. Uh, so building this research vessel, uh, we had um, faculty that were oh, schooled in a variety of different things, but their focus was on marine history. Uh, there were sciences involved and other humanities.
2: Yeah, really.
1: So that was an interesting year. Did that. Uh, the class ended. I could have continued with that in a second year if I wanted to, but I at that point with the exposure to the boat building, I really yeah. wanted to. St- start to focus on making yeah. I found the boat building at the scale we were dealing with to be too cumbersome and too large too long yeah. so furniture became the next place to experiment with yeah. uh, class was offered and I signed up for that mm-hmm. it was a sculptural making in wood sort of class the professor was a term appointment from a uh, university the other side of the mountains in Washington, and his was a really sculptural background. But he was able to speak and.
0: Would he of... be something we a name we would know? No,
1: we? no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be. Um, uh, Richard and hers was his name, but it, as far as I know, he's no longer practicing. Yeah. Um, the uh, class was two semesters.
0: That's not long enough. <laughs>
1: two semesters. It was mean it was two se- well you know I I was young enough at the time that I was looking for a variety of experiences. Yeah. So the class was two semesters long and being in the Puget Sound area of Washington focuses were to the water, to the mountains and then also Alaska.
0: Okay, so yeah, that makes sense with the, the marine studies and uh, in a much deeper level, doesn't it? Just oh, it was the geography. It was, it
1: was the environment. Yeah, it was it was there. You, you wake up when you're in the Puget Sound. It's not uncommon that you wake up, you look out your window, and you're looking at Mount Rainier, uh, the North Cascades, or the um, the Olympic Range. Well, it the sounds Olympic right up Minnesota. your alley
0: if you got if you're interested in the outdoors. It sounds beautiful. Oh, it's 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 gorgeous. Too many people. Is there? Yeah, yeah. Bastards. How's that happen? I just terrible. Most places tend to attract people, don't they? Yeah.
1: There was a big migration of Californians. (laughs) Okay, really? In the early 80s, and then it just continued. So the place was sleepy, and then it just changed. Well, and that's where uh, Microsoft and um, all the tech world moved up there in the mid-80s, and it just completely transformed it. But by that point, I had left. Oh, Okay. I took a, I took a semester off when that class ended, yeah. and I went up to Alaska and I worked in a cannery. Yeah, right. Uh,
0: What's well, Alaska like? Uh, be like well, it's apart from being cold?
1: No, it's not. It's not in the uh, you know summertime. You've got twenty three hours of sunlight. Yeah. So you know the plants are prodigious. Yeah. The growth seasons. Though short, it's intense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, the winter comes in. And, and who needs dark. to
0: sleep anyway? <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> that's so true. It's kind of strange, surreal when you're out at 2, 3 a.m. in the morning, yeah. sun's at dim, but it's not down. Yeah. yeah and their kids on their bikes running around. Yeah, well, it, It's wild. Yeah,
3: yeah.
1: Alaska was a great experience. Uh, working in the cannery was mundane, but it was still the exposure to different people and mm-hmm. different ideas and thinking. Uh, another crossroad I mm. had uh, an opportunity to stay on and um, stay on the island where this cannery was as a uh, as a essentially night watchman or the watchman for the winter and that which is
0: all the time
1: which is all the time and the yeah. only way to your contact is basically when the weather's good the seaplane oh, would come
0: this in. is like The Shining <laughs> do you know the movie The Shining so like yeah some of the You'd characters there. Mr. <laughs> <laughs> there.
1: There were an odd bunch of people up there. And mm. I entertained it for a while, and then I went, There are a bunch of odd people up there. Yeah, right. I don't need to become one of them. Yeah. So uh, I left, I traveled around Europe for a while. And while I was doing that traveling, I was applying to woodworking programs. I yeah, realized, okay. kind of focused uh, yeah, on yeah, what yeah. I wanted to pursue, what my yeah, interests were. Yeah. And I was accepted into Boston University, their program in artisanry. Uh, I entered there in 1980 and started my course of study. So that was my formal training Mm -hmm. when I went in there. Mm -hmm. And I was there for three years. Uh, Graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Furniture Design. Yep. And And would
0: we know some of the teachers from there? uh,
1: The teachers were Jer Osgood and Alphonse Mattia. And Jair Osgood had trained with Tay Frid. He had gone to school at the same time as Wendell Castle. They were classmates. Frid came over from Denmark in the late 50s, hired by the Rochester Institute of Technology School for American Craftsmen to run their program. In short order, he went to RISD mm. and started their program within the industrial design department. Mm. Alphonse came out of Virginia Commonwealth University they had a hybrid program of sculpture and woodworking. Mm. The president at Boston University, for whatever reason, decided to start this artisanry program. It was his creation, and he also killed it 10 years later. Did he? Yep. Didn't see the interest anymore, didn't have the passion for it, so oh, he let wow. it go. Yeah. But at the time, it was probably one of the best craft programs in the country.
0: Yeah.
1: So lucky me, I was there at that time. I mean, those
0: dudes are pretty well known, are hey?
1: Oh, they're the they're,
0: the big wheels. Yeah,
1: yeah. So Osgood, uh, very old at this point, still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alphonse, I believe, has moved to Mexico now, uh, is setting up a studio down there. So still making. Mm-hmm. And the students that came out of that program, a lot of them went on to teach at other institutions mm-hmm. in the United States. Certainly at RISD, uh, University of Wisconsin Madison, Tom Lozer, yeah, uh, and uh, Wendy Mariama. Yep. Um, she she didn't go there, but she was involved with different personalities, and she went yep. out to San Diego State. So a lot of people came through either as guest lecturers, uh, term term appointment teachers. So it was real. Um, it was a gathering point of a lot of creative yeah. energy at the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. That time was, in terms of furniture, uh, pretty pretty big sort of time even in australia here why until th- the mid 90s or something yeah. it just really it just blossomed. went off
1: it really yeah. blossomed
0: yeah
1: everybody uh who was interested in being involved in it could find a space for them
0: yep and then items were selling
1: absolutely yeah. absolutely there was patronage
0: yeah.
1: i see collecting as kind of a cyclical thing yeah. and if you track the american furniture movement in the united states uh, there's an ascendancy that started in the late 50s. It sort of leveled out in the mid-70s and then picked up with a head of steam mm. in the 80s and went in until mid-90s up to 2000.
0: Yeah, And, and then it, it was tapped yeah, out. Tapped out, yeah. yeah. Absolutely tapped it's, out. It happened the same here in Australia. Uh, more no, or less. that's interesting. Um, just trying to think of the timeline. I would, I would say about, yeah, that would be about right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So programs still exist, RISD thrives, the furniture department thrives, but the focus is different. The students coming out of there, they don't necessarily want to be makers. They know how to make. They know how to, they know, they've got a good vocabulary about making, but they really want to design. Their creative passions may be satisfaction for themselves on some kind of making, but it's really individualized more so to make a living designing for either somebody else or for themselves and having somebody else produce
0: is this part of a cyclical thing that you talk about or is this gonna is this Heading off into the future.
1: I see some of this as a generational shift
0: yeah.
1: uh, some of it's about the willingness to commit to something that's really not gonna uh, The potential of making a living a good living at it. You know, how do you qualify good living? Mm-hmm. but from a material way a good living, it's hard. Mm. It's really demanding.
0: I think in any creative pursuit, it's hard and demanding. But I'm wondering whether or not there might be, you know, making things, you've got to have machinery. Mm. They can be big anchors. Yeah. You've got to have a fair amount of investment. That's a big anchor. Yep. And you've got to generate skills that are not necessarily, when well, we were talking before about skills of talking and communicating with people aren't necessarily the same way the the way our brain works with making and i'm wondering and whether or not young people wouldn't want to be makers because so much because they'd just be weighed down with a whole lot of gear and wood and materials and like stuff that yeah okay you can make a living at because you can always sell skills right Mm -hmm. but there's just no space and you know it has to spare money and The debt they're settled when they come out of school is huge. Well, I think all that's true. There's no question
1: about it. I think with the education the students are getting at RISD, they're able to translate their skills and their creative problem solving in a lot of different realms, Mm -hmm. and their capability with digital technologies is good. And so that's another layer that they can also market themselves. Part of it might be that they just want to do a lot of different things and they mm. take that sole focus. I'm going to set up a wood
0: studio. Yeah.
1: That's the rare individual. I, and I'm not putting that person on a pedestal. It's
0: just, yeah. it's a but, different type. Yeah, I, I, that's right. But when I was studying in the early 90s mm-hmm. in woodworking, it wasn't quite so rare.
1: Costs are prohibitive now, yeah. I think. To set up a studio, uh, if you were to do something as simple as sort of the, the Festool m- means of working, oh, well, yeah. that's, that's a ten fifteen dollars mm-hmm. 15000
0: investment. Yeah, plus the rest of it. Yeah. All
1: the heavy iron that we would be purchasing if we were setting our studios up, that's actually cheaper.
0: It's but, way cheaper.
1: <laughs> but the, it's a boat anchor.
0: Yeah, totally. You're, yeah. you're You've stuck. got to have space. Yeah. yeah. But this, is, this is what we're yeah, trying to tease out. And in all honesty... I don't know, but I'm really curious because it seems that the institution that I graduated from, Canberra School of Art, is a radically different institution now than when I graduated. And it's clearly um, catering to a student population that that's what they want. Otherwise, they'd run it differently. Right, it's a business. And they have to attend to their audience. Hmm. But I'm just wondering, like, there must be, the audience is obviously changing and the audience has got different ideas about how they No question about it. I I
1: I don't think the intensive of what the students are looking for. I think they're looking for the variety of experiences. Yeah. And they don't want to be locked into one thing.
2: Yeah. Whether
1: that's parental pressure saying viability. Yeah. Or whether that's just their interest pattern. Yeah. It's, It's definitely different.
0: Yeah. And making things is a bit of a commitment, isn't it?
1: Scale-wise, yes, absolutely.
0: But also skill-wise, too. Look, it does take a long time to get the skills where you can be fully confident, that what you're doing is... Decades. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and you've got to do it all the time, too. You
1: do. There's no
0: question about Mm -hmm. that. Apart from making things, you're also a senior critic. Tell us about criticism.
1: (laughs) Criticism's interesting. Yeah, you have to kind of remove your yourself from the process yeah. to be a fair judge. Yeah, and that's not to say that your personal experiences aren't fundamentally important to sharing your thoughts about objects yeah. and how they're presented, but it's it's it it is not an emotional process, and it's very important not to get wrapped up in the. Uh, the presentation of the work and responding in certain manners. You need to be able to step back and be the thoughtful person. That helps build constructive criticism for the maker and the, the uh, recipient of your, um, mm. your thoughts.
0: Do you need to know how the recipient's going to take what your thoughts would be, or do you not care so much about that and try and just be as empathetic to the maker's intent or the designer's intent or the artist's intent?
1: At the end of the day, you need to deliver your thinking, and you need to let them hear uh, in a manner that is they're, they're, makes them receptive.
2: Yeah.
3: You
1: can be blunt about something, and you can be very diplomatic yeah. at something. and it can be both of those yeah. at the same time. But there are times when the students will shut off. Yeah. They just they're not receptive. And you're not doing your job well if, if that's the case because it's not a personal criticism and you need to be thoughtful in how you help them understand and grow Mm -hmm. so by framing it in different ways depending some of it's dependent on the personality so if you have the benefit of knowing the student through this semester's interaction great, that helps build even more so you can, you can tailor to them. But there are times when you plug into a critique where you don't know any of the individuals and you're just responding to what they've said about the piece and then the piece itself. And, you know, deliver the message,
0: what yeah. your thoughts are. Being uh, in a critical situation doesn't fit well with a current situation where you might have uh, awards for participation. You know, if you're going to critique something, you're not going to award for participation. You're going to sort of get in there and you're going to talk about it. How do, you, how do you do it? Have you got a kind of a formula that you might be able to say, oh, this is how I'm going to critique something? This is the way I see what you're trying to? I think that it's a process of engagement. You
1: want to bring the, the maker into the conversation versus lecturing to them. So the conversation, uh, you can do it in a way that sort of disarms preconceived notions of a critic. You can do it in ways that engage them in an open conversation and through that conversation, you can, you can then share your thinking about the object, sharing it both what you feel they've done well and what still needs to be attended to. Mm. How can you grow out of it? That's really what you try, you're trying to do, in my opinion. Mm. So some of that's just through years of doing this. You just instinctively know, well, in this case, I'm going to, uh, I'll try it this way. See what happens. At times, it just doesn't work. And you need mm. to say what you need to think. Yeah. What, what you are thinking sorry
0: yeah i i think it's a i think constructive criticism is incredibly valuable for the recipient hmm. but in my experience more recently it's incredibly difficult for somebody to take on board some criticism when a person's invested their heart and soul into an object that you know they know where the failings are in it but they've got no real awareness i no real awareness of how to make it better. But that's, that's what the criticism is there for. But it's a very, very difficult thing for some people to actually take on board. And, and, it is hard. Yeah. Yes, there's no question about it. Typical crit at RISD, say, at the end of the semester,
1: this student has been working on a project six, seven weeks. They're exhausted. They have been putting out other fires all through the semester, and it comes up to the time where they need to focus on the project. So they are working 24 hours straight. And they're, they're, they're exhausted, uh, maybe their emotional level's high, uh, they're not listening necessarily because of just, they put it all into something else. And then crit day arrives. You sit down and you're having this conversation. They get there 15 minutes and that's it, depending on the class size, okay. uh, it's not much longer. So you need to be as clear and concise as possible but at the same time you need to engage them you need to draw them in because if it's such in that short amount of time that the walls go up and they're not listening then
0: nobody's served here. Nobody helps, nothing happens so how do you do do that?
1: Well part of that you know the personalities to a degree so you know you have an avenue of approach and you know as simple as it is complimenting them Uh, not unjustly, but complimenting on what they've done to it, because everybody's putting something to it, so Mm. it's not like they're sloughing off on all Mm. chords. Maybe the piece isn't that strong, maybe the idea is not that concrete, or it hasn't been all that well thought out, but they put their heart into it. Mm. So you can acknowledge that, you can uh, commend them on their efforts, and say, you know, if you had the ability to revisit this again, what do you think you would do? Mm. So by posing the question to them, gives them the opportunity for immediate immediate reflection it may not be thoughtful because it's so quickly but through that reflection then the door has been open to a conversation share your thoughts if you just come in uh hard barging on something and push them off well then they're not getting anything constructed out
0: yeah yeah i really like the approach where you go i really don't like the way you did the back on that chair i think it's really poor and i just i told you it was bad at the time and you didn't listen to me and i'm I think that works too.
1: Yeah, um, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
0: a, it's a shitty one. <laughs> it's it look, like uh, a couple of years ago, I was um, a judge at an exhibition, and we did this walk around on the next Sunday, and it was it was very interesting for me how people were responding or not responding, and mm. taking on board or not taking on board. It was a very very difficult. Exercise much more difficult than the judging process. The judging process was difficult because if you could give everyone a prize, Hmm. you know, like, God damn, Mm
1: -hmm. wow. So why do you think that they weren't receptive?
0: Partly because of the same reasons that you're talking about. There's a level of exhaustion. There's also a level of emotional attachment to the piece themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's a lack of uh, experience in the people that were giving that crit, me included. And from that, I've been asking questions, and I'm very particular in asking you this question as an experienced critic, how you go about it. Because clearly there were ways to do it better.
1: Right, right. There there always are. It's very much situational, though. Mm. I do some... Uh, judging for student competitions with mm. a group called the american hardwood export council in the united states uh-huh. and they work internationally and i've been down in mexico a number of years every couple of years for student design competitions there's a bit of a language barrier there so that makes it difficult but the students are just eager and yeah. i think everybody at some level is really eager for feedback
2: yeah
1: the tough thing is finding a way of removing the, the, the attachment that's so immediate to an object that they put their heart and soul in. And then depersonalizing it so you can, so let's look at this object. Mm. How is this successful within sort of the criteria of the prompt, but how is it successful within your own uh, problem-solving abilities? Mm. And if you can get in there, I think you can have that meaningful conversation. Yeah. It's not always successful.
0: No, nah. And it seems to me that it's a two-way street. So. You're asking the maker, the designer, the artist um, directly, what do you reckon, Mm -hmm. firstly, foremost, and then you've got your own opinions and you'd you'd form those opinions as that person is actually communicating to you. So you've got a conversation running.
1: Yeah. Mm. I think one of the most beautiful moments when that conversation is running is when the student says something that I don't expect or I don't, I haven't Mm. perceived before. Okay. And, because they're educating me then. and. That is a benefit. Oh. That that's fabulous. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I that's one of the things I find about the find uh, so rewarding
0: about teaching. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the teachers uh, also a, is is a student. No question about it. Yeah. Yeah. Hundred percent. I
1: think if you lose sight of that, that those moments as a teacher, then you need a sabbatical. You need to take a break. <laughs> you need to get another job. Well that too yeah. you know the, the time being able to recognize when it's time to leave is just as important as recognizing mm. the moments when there's an opportunity Cause yeah. that is an opportunity maybe yeah. a hard one to, to swallow but you, you need to recognize that
0: yeah I reckon just in the most interesting thing for me I've come to realize is just the, the learning all the time mm. being challenged not in a way that you go oh my God. Yeah, I don't want the stress no. of that kind of learning, no. but I want to be learning. And you want to be learning, the yeah.
1: The minute that stops,
0: stuff yeah. something's not working. Time for something else. Yeah. You are involved in a university, and tertiary education is your gig, part of your gig. How important do you reckon it is to have a university education?
1: There are a lot of options out there. Uh, the apprenticeship system's dead, uh, certainly in the United States. Uh, it's a rare case where somebody says, oh, I've got an apprenticeship system, and you come in. A lot of times you're just getting sanding lackeys. And the students that I talk to that do internships, so internships are pretty pretty big with uh, students unpaid at school. Unpaid volunteers, yeah. yeah. unpaid slaves is what yeah. I really think they're oh, okay. more of. Uh, they should be in their yeah. learning. You know, they're going to assist in processes, but they should be in their learning. That's what an internship is. Yeah. And when you have somebody parked at a bench for, say, a summer's time and you're sending somebody else's work and yeah. you don't have much engagement with them, yeah, let, it's just
0: that's slavery. not what it is. Yeah. yeah, you need to be, if you're going to be an intern, you probably need to be involved in a program something that's got a little bit of structure and you know what you're going to give and what you're going to get or the person who's offering the internships
1: is honest about what they're expecting to do and if they say I'm giving you an internship they really need to be that mentor that internships should be about and you can have somebody work for you and produce for you in that but you need to also be mentoring them in different ways so they're learning and they're not just getting calluses on their fingers
0: yeah and being bored were your parents always supportive in what you did? They always were supportive. That's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? I, uh,
1: I, I don't think my parents fully understood what I did.
0: Yeah, my okay. father,
1: loving man he was, very much involved in um, looking at different different types of education, alternative education, and fully supportive of that. So that's yeah. sort of my
0: experience. But Did you go to an alternative education? I
1: did. I did. Uh, um for what reasons? Uh, I'm not really sure if my father was really interested in different uh, schooling options. And it wasn't a matter of, you know, f- uh, I think alternative schools nowadays are, are considered places where people are falling through the cracks or failing or sent, certainly in the United States. But back in the time, in the 70s, when I was in uh, grade school, uh, it was really looked at some of the English system of different learning models. And he's very intrigued by that. So. We went to uh, the middle school, the junior high at the time uh, that I ended up going to, uh, was newly created by a day school, which was the uh, teaching school, uh, sort of their, their experimental program of a u- university outside of Philadelphia, and so when the middle school junior high was created, uh, there were ten of us, and uh, for the whole school for the whole school, and so that's um, pretty intimate. It's very intimate.
0: Uh,
1: the first day of class, the the headmaster walked in and, and said, "What do you want to do? You guys figure it out. I'll be back. I'll be back in two days."
0: Uh, can I play my TV game? <laughs> we didn't have that back then. No, we didn't. We didn't have any. Of it. We were. We
1: were all together in a room. We didn't know each other, mm. and we sat and talked for two days.
2: Yeah, right.
1: It was an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. And that continued in different forms. That school ended and I went on to a public uh, alternative school that was a collective of students who applied to this program through four different school districts in the Philadelphia area Mm -hmm. and more formalized, but still it was a different means of education. So they were very supportive of that. And then I left, you know, I graduated, left home, uh, and sort of found my own path. But always they were there. They never pushed back on it. And I was very grateful for that.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it seems like they're sending you to alternative education facilities so that you can have the best you can possibly get.
1: Mm. The experiences were fundamental for. Formation of who I am today. I think yeah. that also in reflection for how my children uh, were raised, I hope that that was beneficial. Did you for send them.
0: them to the state or private system? Or? We did not. No. Because alternative schools have changed in the states.
1: Yeah. And the alternative schools, independent learning, is either you're spending a lot of money going to a private school, yep. and those are around, I can't afford them. Yeah. or the alternative schools within the public education system
2: yeah.
1: are places for kids who are um, in trouble yeah. and have learning issues, fighting, etc. cetera. Yeah. And that w- I didn't see that. We didn't need that. We didn't see that as an option.
0: No. no. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. 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 And, but you were prepared to prepared to move and position yourself geographically so that your kids could... Benefit. You, you did. It's similar to what you're... Was your dad and your mom professional?
1: Uh, yes, my father was a Baptist minister, and he, but he did not practice in the ministry. So right. he was ordained, and then he went into consulting, but it was consulting with nonprofit groups for social change. Oh, okay. uh, my mother was uh, a headmaster of a nursery school. Okay. And so they were, in their own ways, creative yeah, individuals, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but not three dimensionally.
0: Yeah. And I'm guessing this would be, your, your dad be working in, as a consultant around the civil rights movement. Uh
1: Yes, he, he marched. Um, yep. He was deeply involved in civil rights, both nationally and uh, in the Philadelphia area. Yep. He, he was a straw buyer for uh, black families in white neighborhoods. What's
0: a straw buyer?
1: So segregation was strong. Still is, but it was strong in the Philadelphia uh, area. Yeah, and yeah. their neighbor, neighborhoods, they were slowly being integrated. But a lot of real estate agents would not sell to a black family in a white neighborhood. Oh, gotcha. So he would go in and buy uh-huh. for families who for, wanted to be there, but gotcha. they just couldn't yeah. get through the door. Yeah, Wow. Yeah, yeah. So interesting times. Uh, yeah. They were deeply involved in social, uh, social justice, social yeah. causes.
0: And still, are they still around? They no. both have passed. Yeah. yeah, And did that inform you and in your, like, in a deep way? Like you've...
1: I think that their core values carried on, and I think the the uh, appreciation of the kind of the human condition and looking for justice.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I'm not socially active in the sense I'm not marching in the street. Um, At times, maybe that's just cowardice. I'm not really sure. You don't have to. Well, you don't. You don't. I think that those folks who do have that courage to do it are helping move the...
0: uh, The other other side of that coin is that maybe the things that you'd want to march for Mm -hmm. just aren't... Really happening at the moment.
1: Well, the the, the need to march is increasing as <laughs> so yeah. the, the governments that are representing it's just
0: too much. I'm, I'm out marching every single bloody day. <laughs> oh my god!
1: Yeah. yeah, coming from the the land of Trump to the, the land of Morrison, it's it's crazy. Yeah, right. It's
0: really crazy. Yeah, we need to have a march about fires. No more fires. I don't know if that would work.
1: Well, when we were our first day here, first day of classes here, mm. uh, we finished up at the uni and we're walking back towards St. Anne's and just came across the, the protest up at the State House?
0: Oh, the Parliament House.
1: Parliament House on, on mm. North Terrace. Yep. That was really interesting. That was great. Okay. Uh, the police presence was really interesting in comparison to what you'd find in the United States. In Hesse. Oh, there's not many. Yep. And they are mostly telling people, please don't step into traffic. Yeah. While the police in the states would have been in full regalia of their riot gear. Yeah, really. And it would have been the, the, the solid blue line.
0: Yeah, okay. And
1: that was that was not the presence at all.
0: I think the more gentle approach is going to be much more su- successful. Absolutely. If you want to go and protest, yeah, you do. Especially if you're going to get violent, we're going to... Like, yes. Well, nobody wants that. Yeah. I'm sure they're fully prepared,
1: but... Not in a, a confrontational
0: manner. No, it's disarming. Hmm. So, what were they protesting? What was the protest about?
1: The fires yeah. and the policy, the climate change policy of the government.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems to me that the feeling in Australia and maybe the states too. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but in the last six months, the idea of climate change as a real issue has just come of age. Like before, it was like, oh, no, we don't have to. No, it doesn't exist or whatever. Now it's like, with these fires here in Australia, it's like, nah, this is it. Line's been drawn, like, as a general kind of, like, zeitgeist. And I think the fires catalyzed that.
1: I think that's absolutely the case here. Uh, That's just my impression, talking with some of the students from the uni Mm -hmm. and just in looking at sort of well the news feeds I'm getting from the states, That would certainly be what I would be interpreting. Real curious to see what happens.
0: Yeah. We were talking before about how we're kind of, because of that, we're living in history right now. And it's not the fires that are historic. It's the change of awareness that people have have decided that we don't want this. Well,
1: looking at how Trump has shifted my country, Uh uh-huh. And how, of the two political parties, one has completely become subservient to his agenda. Uh, And then being educated about some of the issues happening here. Uh, I think the United States in some ways needs a cataclysmic event of the fires that you're experiencing. Well, we
0: just don't want that.
1: Well, obviously you don't want that. But mm. what makes things shift in, in mm. uh, uh, democratic institutions?
0: Do you know, it can be anything. It doesn't have to be cataclysmic or violent. There can be shifts just because. There's, there's a shift, uh, another shift previously here in Australia, which was a shift from a notion of our country as being a, a place to produce and create wealth and develop, inverted commas, to a place where environment and wilderness had value in its own right, apart from a, an economic benefit. Mm-hmm. And that was to do with the damming of rivers in Tasmania, yes. the wilderness area. Mm-hmm. Now, prior to the dams being built, you can pretty much do whatever you wanted to the land and that was it. But people fought against those dams and since then Australians collectively have seen our country as having value. Mm-hmm. And farmers now would see, their, see themselves, and I know this because if you talk to a farmer now they would probably agree, uh, Farmers would see themselves as custodians of the land that they're farming, and that 50 years ago wouldn't have been the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And More
1: think, of a colonial kind of, it's there for my taking.
0: It's a fundamental change in the way people think about the place in which they live. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering whether or not there's another fundamental change that's happening, whether or not there's a sense that Well, actually, the whole world, you know, the whole globe, it's not just our country, but it's everywhere. We've got to, you know, we're just going to have to change the way we live and the way we look at things and the way we think about things. And maybe we're experiencing this right now, this change.
1: Well, I would like to think that. I think we're at a crossroads. And going back to when we were talking about crossroads earlier, that the hopeful side of me is that that's the case and i think that's completely driven by the younger generations and they are our future and they're our hope
2: yeah
1: because i think the older generation certainly my generation in the united states They're not comprehending the change. They're not accepting the change. And at times, I wonder if what we're witnessing because of the rise of the authoritarian figures around the world
0: is this a death in the Western world?
1: In the Western world, but they, you know, you know, uh, Putin, you know, I I lump him into
0: well, the Russia's always been. Yeah. an authoritarian state. But, yeah. but,
1: you know, is this the death of democracy? As I we know?
0: don't think so. I think actually we're seeing a rise of democratic states, and I think there's going to be ebbs and flows. But if we turn the clock back 100 years ago, you would have seen significantly less democracy in the world than you do now. Significantly. No question about that. No question about it. I'm wondering about the next 20 years. I wonder about that too. But I, I think with the resources at our disposal. We don't have... You know, if you... I'm not a historian. I'm certainly not a historian of Germany, but the ingredients for setting up a Nazi party in Germany and having that come to power aren't here.
1: I don't necessarily see it as being the rise of fascism.
0: No, but but it's an example. Like, the ingredients for that, that violence and the hatred, it just doesn't... It's different because we've got... So many, we've got Google, if you want, okay, so you can, you can be an idiot, you know, against all evidence, you can still be an idiot. Mm. But anybody who's got half a brain is going to say something and then, oh, whoops, I got that wrong, and realize it and change their view. I, I,
1: I, would, I would like to believe that. Well. I, 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 I have to say, from an evidentiary point of view, there's a lot of examples, at least in the States, where people who I know are level-headed, caring, wonderful people have drunk the poison of mm. of so sort of the misinformation, the distortion that is going on out there. Mm. And they're buying into this line oh. that
0: supports
1: this thinking that's
0: destructive. Mm.
1: Uh, so I, I, I'm not as say optimistic as you are of
0: course they could be
1: right <laughs> <laughs> no <a> chance
0: <laughs> I, I think if if anybody is espousing hatred or even a sense of an us on them I think they're to probably be avoided or even no nah, status quo is good let's do business as usual yeah no don't you worry about that we're getting on to it hmm. it's alright you don't have to think don't worry We've got it under control. That's the, that's, um, that's the alarm bells that I would be looking out for. And that can come from any side of politics.
1: No question about it. You can have, you can have that from the left as much as you can. And the bo- from the, the right.
0: most difficult thing is actually to find legitimate information that's balanced. It is very difficult. You won't find it on the television news.
1: Uh, the states, maybe public broadcasting for us, okay. would be um, an organization that consistently tries to find balance. Uh-huh. And they're under pressure because they're publicly funded, uh-huh. majority government funded, that they have to, um, you know, they have to watch that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, I, think, yeah, I think we need to... But at the same time, sorry. while it's difficult to find balanced opinion where, you can, where you're allowed... To make your own opinions because we do have the internet and accessible from our phones which is very very convenient there are you know it is just a click away if you can find it if you can find somebody who's I don't know I remain so, so <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would take a little different view on that. Okay, is that that one click away is one click away from more disinformation?
0: Possibly. And the problem, but, you've got to, but that's always been the case.
1: It has. It's just more readily available. It's more immediate. I'm so not you've saying, got to sift it. You, you know, have you, ha- to. you have to do the work. But you have to have the tools to understand. And I'm not trying to set up a elitist kind of attitude that, well, those who are uneducated, the Unwashed masses, they just don't get it. We'll lead them forward. That's nonsense. But the distortion out there that is so it's so well done.
0: It's How pretty do good, you, isn't it?
1: It is amazing. They've been, How do you they've you make been the,
0: trying to do it for a long time. And they're perfecting they're it. They've got
1: it. Yeah. And the ability to understand what you're reading and then make your own decisions, it's, it seems to be getting more difficult every day.
0: Mm. Well, we are having this conversation, so maybe that's a good it's thing. Not quite as difficult. Maybe it's, <laughs> I, I'm going to remain hopeful because I am too. But I hope just on happens. a large, if if we, if we if we if we look on a bigger picture, it's clear. I think from I dare say facts, but just looking at it, we're living in a, 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 we do have better lives than at our disposals than perhaps our parents' parents' parents did. And the only thing that I think has been taken away from us that I think we could probably claw back a bit is time. Absolutely. Mm. The clock's ticking.
1: If the issue of climate change was not on the table, I would have no worries about this is going somewhere where I would rather not go. But... I do believe in the pendulum shifting, and it would okay. swing back. Yeah. But when you have the pressure of climate change and the immediacy of going over the edge, the pendulum will it swing back in time?
0: Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You've been in business for a while.
1: I have mm. been in business for myself thirty-five years. I finished uh, my training at university, and then. Started the business. Uh, I started the business while I was still in university. Yeah, right. but But uh, started you know making professionally uh, commission based, and it's kind of gone on. How did you get your that?
0: first client?
1: Um, I was very I was very aggressive about trying to show work, yeah, yeah. publicize work, uh-huh. and um, there were some guys collectors who were kind of kicking around the school. They would just... they come to student shows. They'd buy occasionally. They'd watch what was going on. And they sort of approached about six people at the program Mm -hmm. and kind of said, you know, we like your work. They're really vague. And they kind of said, you know, make us a proposal. What would you like to do? Mm. But no real direction. And Mm. sort of everybody else blew them off. And i pursued it okay and it turned into about two and a half years worth of work oh,
0: god damn
1: so that was fortunate it was really fortunate i've ended up furnishing a house for them yeah. and at while that was going on i reached out to various media sources yeah. and said hey i've got this kind of project going on it's kind of akin to the old patronage system where somebody's brought me under their wing and they're paying yeah. me to do this. Are you interested? Yeah. And some articles came out yeah. regarding the project and you know, just sort of built a name in town, in Boston area. Yeah. That's where the majority of my work is.
2: Yeah.
1: Also at the time, as we were talking earlier, the kind of medium was on the ascendancy and yeah. things were really go-go. And there were shows all over the country, yep. international um, media was picking up different things. And so, you know, you just get your name out there. Yeah. It it starts to roll after a while on its own.
0: Yeah. I reckon there'd be a number of people out there that wouldn't have a problem with publicizing themselves. And I reckon there'd probably be a number that would have a lot of problem. Let's let's select the latter group. What sort of advice could you give to somebody that...
1: Um, It's sort of that public speaking role. If you're uncomfortable with it, you really need to get over that yeah. and force yourself yeah. and come out of your comfort zone. Be happy with promoting yourself. Be confident in promoting yourself, yeah. and just understand that's just part of this. If you want to do this,
0: yeah, look at 100% is. Yeah, public speaking is something that you would be best enjoy. <laughs> Because, yes. because yeah. if you, people just tend to find themselves doing it if you can't. Yeah.
1: You got to do it. Yeah. You can't work in a vacuum.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. if you do, then it may be wonderful work. It may be incredibly satisfying, but, but who it, sees it?
0: Yeah, and is that sustainable if no. it's just in your own little thing? And, well, yeah.
1: I, I do know a couple people who are independently wealthy, uh-huh. and they can just do whatever they please. It doesn't matter. Does the work?
0: Hmm, okay, so you can do what you want, but is the work? Can you see something that's better? I'm, I'm trying to think of a word that's not a, you know, good qualifier. <laughs> But is there a, a, a quality in the work that you can see because of that independence? Or would you think that actually having a challenge like having to make money from it would be... You know, doesn't I, I think it depends on the person and what, uh-huh. w- w-
1: what they're trying to do. Yeah. I know plenty of people who are trying to make it work and they're really putting objects out there and they're really yeah. present on the uh, stage. So hopefully the work is going to sell and they can get in a rut. And they can do redundant or kind of meaningless, not interesting work as readily as somebody
0: who yeah. uh, just, you know, can float. Yeah. I read about a course, and I'm wondering actually if it even was Boston University, but some lecturer in a ceramics department split their group into two groups. One group had a task, make one perfect bowl. The other group had a task, and that's to make as many as they possibly could. And so they were going to be, each group was going to be graded on those very separate tasks. (laughs) And at the end of the uh, period, the best bowls were apparently from the group that just had to make as many as they could. Yeah. I'd like to be in that group. Yeah. But... Why is that? So where I'm coming from here is that maybe that first group is the people that are independently wealthy, and maybe the second group is the group that, you know, they've got to actually bust a gut and do the get out, get out do and it. do it and like find a market. And...
1: Well, I think that if I was if I was able to be placed in both groups at different times and try to answer those questions, I think I'd fall flat on my face first with the prompt of make a perfect bowl because. <laughs> What's perfect? So, what is that? <laughs> what oh my that? God! I'm going I've just. I've successfully nailed one foot <laughs> to the ground, and I'm doing a circle. And then the other side is just. How much fun could that be? Make
0: just make. See what comes out. Yeah. It'd be. It'd be pretty interesting to try it both ways. Yeah. Yeah, the, That's an interesting. My exercise. instinctual way of working is to do the first way. Is to really. I really. When I do things, I really try to... No, it's not even trying. That's still not the right word. My instinct is to make it as good as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. I would have to try not to. I would have to try and not make it as good as I possibly can. That would be my challenge. To rein that in. To rein so, it in, uh-huh. yeah. To uh-huh. actually stop making uh-huh. it various, uh, it, 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 you know, for various details. It would be... Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I have been able to do it because, you know, I've been in business for a yeah, while, too. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, you, there are some jobs where you don't or there is just no time. You just have to you just, just let it go. Yeah, yeah. And after a while, it doesn't, make any, doesn't matter anymore. You can sort of um, switch in and switch out of both of those areas. But, but my instinct is to do it as good as I can.
1: That, and that's fabulous. Uh, but there are other pressures.
0: There's other pressures.
1: And, but, look, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and part of it can just be as you're making it at best you can. Are you thinking about the next project at that point? Oh, Probably. So then there's also the motivation to like, okay, mm. I, I can visualize this. I understand this. I've seen your work, so I know your craftsmanship and it's impeccable. Whoa, yeah. But but having yeah. to, to put that into sort of a context is that there's some who are fantastic. Well, here, case in part. Um, there, there's some who are just fantastic makers mm. they have the, the hands of God uh-huh. and they can just do f- phenomenally beautiful work but they don't have much talent with regards to the designing there are others who can marry the two together and there's others who can't make worth of the damn but they've got really great ideas mm. and we you know we find our on each project I think you find your ground
0: yeah go with your strengths too absolutely yeah don't try and be something that you're not. But you that, should
1: always be pushing out of the comfort zone because if you yeah. don't, then you know you're not you're not.
0: We're advancing. not learning, are we? Which is what we want to do. We want to learn all the time.
1: So I took this. I took a, a residency workshop back in the mid '90s down at an art center in uh, northern Florida. Uh, Castle the Castle was running, uh-huh. and it was sort of a fluke because it was really not a making space at an art center they're really geared towards writers and composers mm-hmm. so he got talked into by a client who's kind of said you can have my house and you can have my porsche while you're down and
0: have a good time oh and yeah that's a hard decision yeah
1: well that you know castle
0: give oh, me the house but the porsche nah
1: he went for it yeah. and so then most of the time was spent just talking and, and drawing because yeah. i think there was a bandsaw that didn't work very well uh-huh. and that was it but one of the really critical things that Castle talked about. I said, you know, think of your career path as a, as a corridor. And one side of the corridor is safety and one side is risk. Now, nobody can negotiate that corridor going in a straight line. You're always going to veer back and forth. And, you know, if you, the thing is you've got to make sure that you're always veering. Because mm-hmm. if you stay in safety too long, the process is kind of over. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. you might as well be just a factory making something. But if you stay in risk too long, it just becomes overwhelming. And, you know, mm. you're, you lose sight and maybe your head explodes. Mm. So you want to be going back and forth, back and forth, but you always want to be moving forward. Mm. And I thought that was keen observation and fundamentally mm. important.
0: Nice way of looking at it. Did you ever employ people, have apprentices? A little. Yeah.
1: I had different times where i bring somebody in on a job. I thought about, at the beginning, after a couple of years... The possibility of um, employees, yeah. and I think one of it, one of the reasons not to go there was that I just like working by myself,
2: uh-huh.
1: um, and I didn't try to line up so much work that I would have. A backlog that had demands in short order.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, there are times when maybe you have a backlog of six months, maybe you have a backlog of a year or something like that. But it was metered in such a way that, okay, one job to the next job mm. to the next job. is never a means of making great amount of money. Nah. Uh, but it, it, it paid the bills. Yeah. I like that. And I also found mm. that for the most part when I hired somebody, uh, you know, I, I'd hire them at a certain skill level. But I also, I ended up fixing things. Okay. And I don't want to do that.
0: No, fair enough. Would you be able to, okay, so you work at RISD as well. Would you be able to just uh, survive, run a business sustainably with your studio practice?
1: I would have to reconfigure it now. Yeah, okay. The world's changed in uh, my, in my market.
0: 20 years ago, would that have been possible? Oh, yeah. Or yeah, was yeah, it yeah, possible? Yeah, yeah. You yeah, it was, would. It
1: was. Well, you're always looking for new clients. So the business yeah. structure I had before I was teaching, and that's probably around the time when things started to shift, uh, was that I had probably f- five or six families
0: yep.
1: that I'd worked for. Yeah. And they'd cycle through. Yeah. So maybe you work from once every couple of years, yeah. maybe once a year or something like that, but between the five or six families. Yeah. And I always felt like, okay, I just mm. need to pick somebody new up. Mm. But they aged out. Yeah, right. They either died or they sold the second or third home. Yeah. And they, they, you know, are downsizing. Yeah. And the realization I came to a little later, because for a while, it's like, oh, my God, what's happening here? Business is, you know, I, I don't have the backlog.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, scrambling. And, you know, thinking about it, I really, you know, the kids, they're kids, probably from families so they're doing well. And they're trying to make their mark now. And they don't want to have what their parents had they want to really mm. set their own, yeah. and at that same time, the confluence of events, um, mass marketed furniture design at least was becoming much more sophisticated.
2: Mm.
1: Advent of the computerized machines, making it out, making it really good, making it fast, and so I never felt when I first started out there was much com- competition from that side of the market, and then there's a lot of competition. From you that reckon? Side oh i think so i think that unless you're getting into the really personalized objects that really tell an individual story um if you're looking at some of the objects that are coming out of the states or italy or wherever some of it's pretty sophisticated
0: yeah i i agree with the increase in sophistication and particularly the ability for manufacturers to make interesting shapes much more easily
1: Mm. So custom maker like you are, like I am, you step back. You look at an object, and we're looking at a really sophisticated object where we're getting that information at 20 feet, and you walk towards it, and you're getting another layer of information at 10 feet, and then the 5 foot. Well, you're not getting that necessarily out of those mass-produced items. No. But at 20 feet, maybe at 10 feet they're really sophisticated and a lot of people don't care beyond that
0: no look even at five feet depending on where you're going to go and have a look i i never felt myself look oh look it's so complicated god this is a really look it seemed to me that for a designer maker doing this stuff you can you can tap into a client do a commission and the client will look ask you for a commission because they can't find it somewhere else, the, the thing that they want. That's, that's how you can do that. So mm-hmm. that works. Yeah. If you're going to make something that's speculative, it uh, occurred to me many, many, many years ago that the only real way you can find somebody to get interested in that work is if you chuck a story on it. Absolutely. And that story's got to be easily interpretable but quite mm-hmm. enigmatic. As an example, in my personal work, Ned Kelly, which is a bushranger here in mm-hmm. Australia, mm-hmm. who wore this iconic uh, helmet, which he <laughs> made, uh, made a chair. And, God, it's just such an obvious chair back. You know what I mean? Yeah. So everyone in Australia knows who Ned Kelly is. Yeah. Everybody. There isn't uh, anybody that hasn't been here for at least it's five seconds. It's yeah. absolutely and, uh, uh, an iconic individual. Conflicted. He was a murderer and a robber, but a hero yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Was he a freedom fighter or was he just a... It depends on which way you yeah. flip your coin. And uh, so those sorts of things give a piece of work greater depth. And that's where I think an artist or a designer maker can actually find their clients from work like that, rather than just making another form, because let's face it, you know, forms are, I don't know how you would make another form.
1: It's all about the storytelling.
0: Yeah. There's
1: no question about that. I think so. People may come to you because you have a reputation, but there, there are a lot of other reputations out there. And they're coming to you because they like your story Mm. or they want you they like you what you've done as a storyteller and they want you to make something that's going to tell a story that they can own Mm. and then they have that story to share with their friends and that's i think that's where the importance is Mm. so making you know geez watching watching the students work in design because they're uh, increase in their level of sophistication as they go through uh, their, their training. It's really interesting to see how they develop that ability to tell a story. And, you know, some, some don't do it very well. Do you teach it explicitly? No, not explicitly. We don't, we, I haven't in my classes because I'm with the classes I teach her in the spring semester, it's the sophomores. Uh, witness tree Just
0: y- Yeah, what's a sophomore?
1: <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. So the structure is when you enter into a university or a college system, higher education, uh, in the state's first year is your freshman year. Uh-huh. And that's your foundational training in yep. whatever, liberal arts or yep, yep. the creative passion. Uh, second year is sophomore. Uh-huh. So, uh, and then you move on to your junior year. Oh, right. And then senior year. Oh, okay. So I'm teaching sophomores in my spring semester. Yep. And Witness Tree floats in between the semesters. It's kind of where it gets placed. Yep. And that's open to all, yep. all students within the institution. Uh-huh. And then I kind of I get plugged in where needed with the fall semester. So I could be with seniors uh-huh. uh, or I could be in another class altogether. It kind of varies. Yeah. So I don't teach that implicitly. The the storytelling and how that kind of influences. Uh, I believe that is taught with some of the. um, So, in the senior class, what they're working towards is their degree project. And that's their body of work that is uh, expressing a certain pursuit and interest, Mm -hmm. their thesis. It's the culmination
0: of the whole
1: thing. And so, that is part of the the conversation uh, that is uh, being taught or at least discussed with that class.
0: You've been making things for a long time. Hmm. How many fingers have you got? All five. All five? On both
1: hands. <laughs> Do you know? No, I've, I've got 10, although a couple of them are kind of ugly. Are oh, hey? I've had what accidents. What happened? I just had a hand come back through a saw. It didn't go through it. It came back over it. Yeah. And so it was It was cut up. Yeah. Uh, the, the hand surgeon said, yeah, you'll be able to hold a glass. And that was it. And oh. I happily proved them wrong.
0: Good. Pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Have you got scars? I, yeah.
1: yeah, I do. I do. Mm. But it doesn't, do they, it doesn't does it stop it, me?
0: No, it doesn't. Does it embarrass you at all? No.
1: No. No one knows. No. They don't focus on that. They don't, they don't notice.
0: Yeah. Um, lots of people in our business punish their bodies in all sorts of ways, not just their hands, but like your back and your muscles and...
1: I punish my body in other ways. Do you? Yeah, hobbies.
0: Yeah? was what, <laughs> that?
1: I used to run a lot. I yeah, ran okay. a
0: lot. Did you? Uh, I
1: love... Um, you'd probably call it bush running.
0: It's uh-huh. so a trail running. Yeah, right. And... Um, I don't know what we call it. I've certainly never heard of bush running, but yeah. I, yeah, you just go I, in the woods and yeah, you yeah. run. Yeah.
1: And I would do that. I was lucky enough to have... I never had a studio at home. I always had a studio in an industrial building or yeah, whatever. Yeah, okay. Boston is not that big a city. It's smaller than Adelaide. Is it really? Yep. So I was fortunate enough that I could have a studio situated from my house. I'd go through uh, big parklands,
2: uh-huh. and
1: I was able to run in there. Uh, so really loved running, um, marathon, some um, really? you know, other runs. Yeah. So yeah, the yeah. Boston
0: Marathon's a pretty big one. Did you do that one? I did that. I did yeah, run that cool. once. Yeah, did you win? A,
1: <laughs> Close.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, only in my dreams. <laughs> I saw just recently somebody did a sub two hour marathon.
1: Oh, and uh, I think it was,
0: but it was. Was it Germany? Oh, I don't know, but it was pretty highly supported. it yeah. wasn't a yeah, race. Yeah, yeah. It was. It yeah. was an attempt at the. So now the the next the next stage is to do it in a in unsupported a manner. Unsupported. That
1: manner. is phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal.
0: Isn't it? They say it's going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised.
1: I don't know who Mm. that human being is, but it is really amazing.
0: Somebody who's on the juice. (laughs) Do (laughs) you (laughs) reckon? When you walk into the studio, what brings you the most joy?
1: Oh, just being there. I love the environment. I love Mm. other studios, too. So, here. Yeah. I, we were up at Peter's Walker's yeah, uh-huh, studio uh-huh. with the class. Just, he's going to talk, he talked about his making, yeah. his process, what he's done over his career. And what a happy place. Yeah. I know very few studios that are not that. Yeah. I love the rich, richness of others' experience demonstrated through what's around them. Yeah. Uh, the visual activity that's in a studio
0: is so compelling.
1: Um, what a beautiful thing.
0: Oh, it's so interesting. You can see things that are in the process too mm-hmm. and you can almost see or get a sense of the creative process of that particular individual. And I was talking with Dan about, uh, about the creative process and how difficult that is to communicate, what mm-hmm. that is and how you do it. But you can certainly see it in somebody's studio.
1: Oh, no question about it. Uh, the finished objects in process objects the materials just waiting I love seeing what people are collecting uh, up at peter's house <laughs> yeah. he's got sticks, sticks. he's got a he's shed open shed filled with sticks and sticks. other yeah. things that he's just collecting on his yeah. walks yeah and knowing his work or seeing his work as he explained it you, know, you can start to put things together yeah. uh, I think that's fabulous
0: mm-hmm. It really is. For you, how important is the, def- creative, the decorative aspect of a functional object?
1: Oh, um, I really enjoy it. Yeah. I really like it. I'm so tired of looking at work that is, you know, four legs on a top and they call it a table.
0: Uh huh. We're sitting at one now. I know. Well. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Just for people uh, who can't see this gorgeous piece of table in front of us, it's genuine laminix with printed wood grain and black metal legs. My goodness.
1: Students tend to <laughs> tend to gravitate towards the simpler. Uh-huh. And part of that is driven by what they're seeing in the marketplace. So what is out there in the, you know, what, the ether sphere or whatever you want to call it, you know they, uh, they do their research on, online and they're yeah. looking at things. And just image after image after image after image after image are these simplistic pieces that have nothing to them. And part of it is that that's an aesthetic they're really appreciating. And part of it's also it's just really simple to make. Mm. And I'm bored with that. I can't stand it. How do you, yes, okay, say let's,
0: let's just drop back into critic mode. How do you communicate that to somebody?
1: Well, it's when they present their design about what they want to do. There's always the suggestion of what's the other? What other opportunities are here? How can you express? They're talking from an idea. So why is this the best solution to that idea? What other elements can speak to this to uh, bolster the idea enrich in the idea, uh, fill it out. And you know if they're dead set in their ways and this is what they're going to do, you know, okay, you make your suggestion and you move on. Mm. But if they're open to it, then you can start to direct them at different places to mm. look. Look at historic trends. Mm. Look at other things that are happening culturally at this time. And what are your interests? Pursue some of those. How do you bring that in? Make mm-hmm. that work with your story, obviously. But... You're not living in a white room, where yeah, it's not the 2001 black monolith in white room.
0: Yeah, we talk uh, about the space odyssey here. <laughs> yeah, not 2001 the year. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, you try, you try to help them lift the the veil off of um, sort of this modernist aesthetic that's just so pared down. It's beyond yeah, it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because the modernist aesthetic came about as a reaction to the No, not completely, but partly as a reaction to the extravagance of previous aesthetics. Sure.
1: It's a pendulum. It shifts. It moves. I would just like to help them understand that ornamentation and decoration isn't a bad thing. No. You can go over the top, but you don't have to not utilize it
0: to tell a story. I would definitely, if I was in your position, I would definitely recommend ivory as a material people should get back into. Brazilian rosewood's a good one. Yeah. Just trying to think of some other ones that people should get in touch with. I, I
1: think you need to look under the category extract and trample.
0: <laughs> I think you probably probably want to investigate your CITES list before you get
1: involved in one of those two materials. Yeah, the where to go list.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Wendell Castle and Jar Osgood were both uh, highly decorative in their works, weren't they? In
1: different ways, absolutely. In different ways. Well, yeah. Castle ran the gambit of styles everything from his fiberglass, highly sculpted objects to extremely ornate, deco ish type furniture. And mm-hmm. then he has purely sculptor, sculpted sculpted mm. pieces in there. Mm. You know, you're familiar with his ghost clock. No. So something to look at. It. It's in the collection of the Smithsonian yeah. Institution in Washington D.C. But all it is is this Trump-like carving of a, a tall case clock <laughs> yeah. covered yeah. in, um, you know, what would be a shroud. Yeah,
0: I, I know the one. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: Absolutely yeah. masterfully done. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. object. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, obviously very different than, you know, the other pieces we working work out. Yeah. Osgood followed a strain. He studied in Denmark after he finished his training at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. And that influence carried with him. Uh, mm. He's a technical master. But he stayed within that sort of aesthetic his whole career.
0: Mm. Yeah, stringing and details, like uh, smaller details. But still, I think, yeah. And your work is decorative.
1: At times, Absolutely. Uh, I've employed the, you know, kind of traditional decoration of um, everything from inlay to mm. combination of woods, gilding... Um,
0: lots of figured woods, too.
1: Lots of figured woods. Lots yeah. of figured woods. Um, I Generally, any piece that I make is, I'll say, most most often a combination of two, three woods.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, majority wood and then highlights, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love h- historic styles. American, you know, sort of the the English Chippendale, Sheraton, those kind of styles I really yeah. enjoyed for a long period of time, and I drew heavily upon those. They're
0: pretty classic, aren't they? Yeah, they're yeah. solidly. Very well, I mean, they're, they're basic yeah. furniture as well. Take the decoration away, and
1: yeah. take the it's very you know, basic, yeah. and it's gitched up. Yeah. They they brought these things to the fancify it, mm. and I have found that over the decades, my interest is shifting from the high style to the vernacular and Uh i find that the untrained employment of those styles that they see uh, they saw of the source catalogs or just going to the big city is
0: much more interesting for me yeah that's pretty interesting isn't it because i mean even somebody like pablo picasso was super interested in primitive artworks Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the artist that doesn't have a name
1: yeah yeah i think some of that is the most spontaneous and wonderful work yeah. Not that it's you know it's highly labored any of the work that people are doing, but I think there's a kind of naivete and a beauty of just their own voice that comes out. That when I do it, I'm not trying to replicate it because it's a very kind of concerted effort and a very knowledgeable mm-hmm. effort. Mm-hmm. But there's just elements of their uh, of that kind of working that I think is really kind of fundamentally mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. That also addresses, you know, when you're moving from one style to another style, you're sh- your thinking's been shifting for a while, and it's kind of like, what do you do next? Uh, I, I taught with a very talented uh, maker. Her, her name was Gail Friedel. She taught at RISD for a while. And in one of her lectures to the students, she's talking about hitting a wall and what do you do? Mm. And I was, that was really important for the students to hear because... You know, from their perspective, because it's so limited, I, th- I feel like they just see forever over the horizon and it's just always going to go on. But, you know, having the hindsight of experience, it says, well, it, it doesn't. You stumble mm-hmm. in a lot of different places. And mm-hmm. what what exactly does that mean? Mm-hmm. And do you continue to poke yourself in the eye with a sharp stick? Or do you, you know, beat the head against the wall? Or, you know, how do you how do you deal with that kind of wall that you're running, a creative um, lack of creativity at a certain time and she said that when she ran into it, one of, one of the big times she, she put away her square and all the measuring devices went away oh. and she just started to work from just the hand and the eye
0: A limit of delimit if you do hit a wall you could start really severely limiting yourself in another way and mm-hmm. in, in her sense she's kind of like delimited by limiting instead of you can't measure you can't get it can't do that That's such an interesting way but she
1: also what it brought forward was a faith in her abilities Uh because she knew that her hand and her eye her mind worked together at such a core level that it wasn't necessary to become dependent On these external devices, she
0: must have had the luxury of being doing exhibition type of activities when she was doing this. I guess
1: at that time, I believe so. She was also, I I think, I may be getting this out of sequence, but I think at that time, she was running the wood department in uh, at one of an art center. Anderson okay. Ranch, in oh, yeah. Colorado. Yep. So that might have been
0: the timing; so it yeah, might not yeah. have. Yeah, had so a, had a, an ability or a space that allowed that, could that be to happen. Yeah, to happen. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How important is material to the design, to or the, to your design? How important is material? The material.
1: Well, uh, the material for me is I'm working at wood primarily, so you know fundamentally I, I've got to deal with that. Yep. It's not like I'm picking a plank out looking at it and say, I'll make this out of that. That's always secondary. So if I'm going to make a chair, then I'll decide what I want to be working with in the material world. Design will dictate what I need to use if there's, you know, structural issues that I need to be dealing with. So, mm. well, I can't use bolts wood on that mm. or a really lightweight willow.
0: Do you, do you, say? So do you start with the form as a concept or do you it doesn't sound like you start with a board that you get inspired with the grain patterns or anything no, like that. no 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 I'm starting
1: with the concept first so
0: you'd sketch and
1: I, first a lot of it's just mental visualization uh-huh. and just process 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 in my head yeah right and then I'll go to the sketchbook uh-huh not sketchbook first
0: yep uh, so you're not sketching all the time? No, I'm
1: not sketching all the time. I don't do that. I've Slipped away from that, and at times I really regret it. It's mm-hmm. not a natural process. Yeah. And I have to say that I see some of the students' sketchbooks here in the class, and I'm just I, I'm floored with their talent. And maybe at some point earlier on I had that, and I just kind of let it slip. I think it's a fundamental tool in the, in the, the process, mm. uh, but I don't utilize it all the time. Um,
0: yeah, drawing is a very interesting process because with skills of drawing comes the skill of looking. Absolutely. And that's the fundamental thing that we want to have. You can look without having to draw, but when it comes to designing i think you need to jump through various options in the drawing stage no just in the conceptual stage as fast as you can this is my personal opinion Mm -hmm. as fast as you can and drawing is pretty quick it's much quicker than making a model oh absolutely quicker than drawing is in your mind Mm -hmm. and that's what you're explaining yeah so i
1: will go to the modeling stage not on every project yeah Sometimes I won't even... I will not draw a full-scale drawing. I will uh-huh. not do a technical drawing. Yeah, really? Uh, 50% of the time. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'll draw... If I'm building a chair...
0: Do you I, get rid of your measuring tools too? No.
1: <laughs> I still... I love them. <laughs> oh, come on. I, I need them. You need to do uh, no, it. No, Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but actually, there are different satisfactions that are happening with these kind of processes. Mm. I like to turn a lot. Did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And I find that is... Um, A real great release from the demands of the bench. Yeah. It's so immediate, isn't it? It's so immediate. And there's so many things you can do with that. And the perfect bowl may be enough, or you cut the perfect bowl in half, or you burn it, or something like that. That is where I think that that series of processes kind of take the pressure off. Maybe what would be influencing what's operating at the bench. Part of what uh, the dropping of the uh, detailed uh, working drawings on some of the work is that I can just visualize it. Yeah. And, okay, I need to put a joint in here and I'm not exactly sure on the measurement so I'll do a quick drawing yeah. for that. Yeah. But otherwise I don't need to do the rest of it. And th- I'm not trying to say like, like, oh, I've got all the skills and all that. It's mm-hmm. just, if it's not overly complicated, then... Fine, I could just get that
0: out. And in a sense, it, it allows you to change on the fly as you're building and the forms are coming up in the full size, which, as we all know, uh, we don't all know, but you, people can imagine, I think, that as you're building something in full size, it is a, definitely a different thing just to, to seeing something in one fifth scale or as a two dimensional representation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the ability to throw those objects around in your mind is a practiced skill Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. if you've got that ability use it
1: I I absolutely believe so Mm -hmm. I think that also numerous people have said this before me about how you can't forget something until you know it so the skills that you build over the course of your time working in you know this medium you, you can't not utilize Or make the determination that I don't need to do this now until you fully understand it. So my dropping or somebody else dropping of the modeling process or the drawing process at certain times. If you haven't gone through all that and trained and all that and understand that, well, if you drop it, you're missing a lot of Mm -hmm. information and that hurts. Mm. And I know the time... I'll be making... ops If it's commission-based and I've already proposed something to a client, I'll follow through on that completely. Mm. So I will have a drawing yeah. that's going to tell me what to do because I need to deliver what I told them.
0: Yeah. And you also need to communicate what it is that Absolutely. they're going to receive. Yeah.
1: So they may get a model. They may just have a, a drawing. It kind of is my assessment of what they're able to visualize. Yeah. But if it's something that I'm doing for exhibition or if it's something I'm doing for myself, yeah. then... The process can be, from a, you know, an external view vantage point, it might be, well, this is, this is haphazard. But you know, there's, there's organization to the chaos.
0: I like it as an idea. It's good. It's exciting. I think it, it allows you to do changes on the fly mm-hmm. just because and yep. be a kind of a little bit more responsive to what's going on. And as you see the materials coming forwards... And
1: yeah, they the, speak to you. Mm. Uh, the hope is that the material the the changes are those thoughtful
0: moments versus the oh crap hey they're good too sometimes like because you you make a mistake and it can open a new door that you can't have conceived of so that's just a way of thinking of stuff poor idea to make a mistake and consider yourself woe is me Mm. much better to practice making a mistake because, God, that happens all the time. Yeah. Hells, make a mistake and see it as an opportunity for new new ways. Even if you can't find that new way and you've just got to make that component again because usually it's just a component. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I see your work as quintessentially North American. There's lots of strong colours and contrasts, textures. You've got mostly platonic shapes, at least on your... What Bits, do you mean yeah. the time? Well, squares, circles, triangles—basically, yeah. yeah. they're using geometry. Geometry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a fair assessment? I think, to a degree, yes. There's no question
1: about it. Uh, that would definitely be reflective in the earliest work, yeah. going up until probably. You know, it kind of it kind of moves in and out. It depends on what it is. Yeah. Uh, I think some of the work I'm doing now for myself or for speculative. Maybe moves a little bit more outside of it, but it's still grounded. It's yeah. it's not as decorative. It's it's starting to find its way more grounding in uh, architecture, historic yeah, architecture. And also
0: the vernacular you're yeah, you know, yeah. getting inspired by. Absolutely. That. Is the North American aesthetic something you've been consciously striving for? Or as you're talking about now, are you aiming for something more personal?
1: Now it's more personal. Mm. Certainly before it was absolutely striving towards that.
0: Yeah, I think there was definitely a call and
1: response, both to a client base, but also what I was finding interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now because, you know, the luxury of being able to teach. And in that, I don't get paid that much at RISD, but it does, it's a steady paycheck.
0: And the other thing is that you're always thinking about stuff. And right. so those ideas, are, uh, they'll, they'll They're, be there. There. They're yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And so that gives me the ability to play around with some things. Yeah. So I'll do my client work. I'll do uh, I, I do a whole host of different things in the studio. When I start, when I was in school, to earn money while I was in school, I worked for an antique restorer. Uh huh. And I did that for a couple of that's years. That's a
0: that's a brilliant set of skills. That damn. Un Unbelievable. Absolutely.
1: Seeing how other people built, and then learning how to put things back together. And understanding everything from wood structure to the finish
0: was one hundred percent. That schooling in its own right, and, d- and recoloring, touch up stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you? Yeah. How are you going to fix this thing? It's got this great big gouge out of yeah. it. Yeah. It's in Brazilian rosewood and ivory, and you don't have any more. You can't get it. What are you going to do? <laughs> Where's my stock? Uh, yeah, where is that bit of ivory? I got tucked away there. Hey, can get ivory off piano keys. Just yes, a heads up. I know. And tanga nuts. Tanga nuts? What's yeah. that? Oh, is that is that some? Tanga nuts
1: sort of- is some nut that has an ivy like quality, but I had an interesting job this past, past fall. That was uh, another faculty member at school. Rizzi was asked to design some tables for a client of his for his yacht, and so he was just creating some veneer samples, marquetry veneer samples. He wasn't creating them, he was designing them, and then he asked me to make them. And some of them dealt with ivory, ebony, those kind of things. Well there's archival plastics out there that mm. the museums are using mm. as ivory substitutes. And it was just, it was kind of fascinating. So I created these things, samples, and you I know, handed them off, but it was really interesting to kind of dig into these other, th- other mm. materials mm. that are out there that authorities are using mm. as a substitute that they felt comfortable enough for you know longevity, but also presentation mm. to an audience that says, this is not true, but it is a replication in a considerable yeah, manner. God,
0: that's, it just opens up a whole set of other questions that involve ethics. and. Let's say you make a table in this uh, fake but pretty good fake ivory, mm. right? Looks, feels like ivory. Somebody sees it thinks it's ivory it goes off and commissions an ivory table from somewhere Not good uh, well, yeah but i mean do you see like it's so yeah. do we not use this material oh, it's a really interesting sort of like, uh, yeah
1: i mean you have a responsibility as a responsibility as a designer and as a maker to inform what is going on here and why and if you don't do that you, especially if you try to pass
0: it off well that's com- completely over <laughs> yeah i'm gonna do <laughs> i'm gonna track down this fake ivory i'm going to use a shitload of it i'm going to say it's real ivory and i'm going to say if you don't like it tough no i'm not you can also get mammoth ivory which uh, given that mammoths are extinct you can't kind of make us an extinct animal already extinct and that is fairly readily available too
1: yeah i know people who do scrimshaw and that's what they're using on the scrimshaw Yeah. yeah yeah I don't think I'd go there because I feel like that's a little too close to it. I mean, just, it's not like I have call for this kind of stuff. Mm, but in this case, it was an interesting kind of adventure in an area that I'm not terribly familiar with. I'm not, terribly, uh, I'm not with.
0: advocating that anybody should use ivory. For heaven's sake, I'm joking. But let's say you're restoring a piece of furniture. You're restoring mm-hmm. a musical instrument. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, You're going to use this plastic that I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Because that yeah. is the material to use. Where do you get it from? Google. Hmm. Uh, I don't remember the source, but no, I'm going uh, to it because it's But that you know, that 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 is a question of sustainability that's really important for students to think about, and we do yeah. have conversations about this. Yeah. And that, you know, even looking at woods that are not. On the studies list mm. or woods that are not uh you know locally endangered you need to be having conversations about sourcing and materials and mm. what are the choices there yeah uh, i think you know some people say oh we'll just use plantation wood." well there's a whole host of
0: issues with regards to that it totally is and there's a whole mm, if you're manufacturing it's a much more difficult conversation to have because you need a lot and it needs to be uniform Absolutely, as a manufacturing process it's just otherwise it costs too much right so you're not going to be manufacturing for too long if you're doing one-offs if you're lucky enough to do one-offs and commission work then yeah you can source your timbers really super likely how many trees get cut down on the side of the road every year Absolutely. for instance yep. people's backyards for instance yep. there are companies out there that tap into And harvest these trees and I reckon it's a great place to find really exotic timbers that are locally grown and have got very the footprints really super low there's no transport there's either you do it yourself maybe yeah
1: yeah well that's where um, working in the witness tree uh, project has been so interesting because that has brought me into that world of Mm. the local harvesters the uh, Sawyers and I try to get a lot of my wood now. I didn't that I didn't do that before. I was importing from Canada, yeah, I was right. importing from other places because they're really great sources. Yep. But now, if, if I can find what I can find within a you know, hundred mile radius, I'm pleased as punch because yeah. it for all the consequences that it, it it does not bring to the table,
0: but also it's just it's a really nice way of working. It's part of your story too.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> What are the new challenges coming up for you?
1: Well, it's interesting to be here and do the collaboration with UNESA and see where that goes. So Mm. Witness Tree, one, going farther afield and working not with a specific tree, but with just the idea of creation around historic research Mm. is really interesting. And have people working in different mediums is very exciting. Uh-huh. This is something that Dan and I had talked about for a while, but we've really never had a chance to try it. Yeah. So that's exciting, and if it pans out, I would be interested in trying to do it again. Yeah. And it doesn't really, it doesn't necessarily have to be the formal witness tree. No. In that we have the component of history informing the studio. Yeah. It could be where you're working in a, in a particular setting and responding to yeah. that setting. so that's very exciting and i'd like to see where that goes
0: and you did talk right at the head of our conversation hobbies outdoors
1: love the outdoors um you know physically how long it goes you know long as i can i mountain bike i uh i can't run but i like walking
0: oh how come you can't run
1: oh my knees gone oh they're gone they're just gone yeah so be out skiing's gone too what's that skiing oh that's just ugly I could no skiing's uh, the best no no no, 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 no. I, ski, I ski it I used to telly uh-huh. and so free hill's the best I yeah, love that right. but I've had one knee replaced and I got another one that's oh, gotta go no, so no. you know I could I could drop the heel mm. but what's the point it is, is, so where do you ski
0: well skiing yeah okay so here's the thing <laughs> I'm gonna go skiing this year it's a manifestation crossing my fingers for those that can't see the microphone yeah, I haven't skied really since I was in university. Uh, when, luckily, I was quite close to the snowfields and skied a fair bit.
1: Because you're up in uh, Canterbury.
0: Yeah, I went to, I also uh, was at university in Melbourne too. So, and lots of friends of mine skied, so mm-hmm. yeah, did a fair bit of that. And even even following that, but once the kids came along. And yeah, life changes. Man. yeah,
1: yeah. I didn't take up skiing until I was... Thirty-five or forty. Yeah. So cross-country ski, but not downhill. Yeah. And then my wife and I just decided we want our kids to have that experience because yeah. we didn't. Yeah, yeah. And so we all we took it up.
0: It's uh, uh, cross-country skiing and downhill are very different experiences, aren't they? the The experience of downhill is so exhilarating, yeah. and it's so much fun when you get it together and you're you're in control. When you're yeah. not in control, it's scary as shit. But uh, I contrast, the uh, cross-country skiing, you go out and nobody's around, it's, it's just you and the little trail you're on and maybe the valley that you can see through yeah. and it's exquisite. It is.
1: And then you've got the combination of both and doing backcountry skiing.
0: Okay. So you know, so, what do you do? You take a set of downhills on your back or something.
1: So you know? carry. Well, you can do it for if it's for the day. You carry what you need for the day, and you just mm. go off trail. Uh huh. And so you're just out, but your equipment's such that you can do the downhill. Oh, okay. Along with just your your lift heel, so you can you can move. You can you're not dependent on gravity. Uh, so I've done that, yeah. um, and. Okay.
0: Um- <laughs> asked this question <laughs> I asked this question of Dan this is my second interview today it's actually the third kind of in a way isn't it? Right. this is the question same question right do you have a superpower outside of designing and making things and he goes what <laughs> right and so I'm going to ask this question in a different way okay. you can answer this question okay. if okay. you have okay. got a superpower you can say it but I'm going to ask you if you could have a superpower what would it be <laughs> stop evil <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Done. I'd start with Trump. Who decides what evil we are? No, oh,
1: that's my decision. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the Superman, so, so I get to
0: choose. <laughs> this is the thing about superpowers. Like, you, you, you've got so much power. Who controls the person with power? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah. a good thing I don't Who have a Who judges the judge? Right. Mm. right. I don't have a superpower.
1: I'd like to think that... Uh, Bad luck. I've been a good mentor. Both the students and my kids, yeah, yeah. but you know, otherwise, you know, yeah. just, just, there are a lot of people out there of superpowers. I'm not one.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think people are, have got strengths and weaknesses all over That's the. Children. Everybody's human. Yeah, yeah. We lose sight of that at times. Yeah, we can. Yeah, it's possible. When the apocalypse comes, will you have any useful skills?
1: Oh, I'll probably be able to cobble a shelter together, maybe a boat.
0: <laughs> you have to get that knee first. <laughs> yeah, oh <my> God. <laughs> <laughs> I put that in, there. Yeah, get it, get it done. Oh my God. Because gosh. it's coming. I'm only joking about the apocalypse, folks. Just trying to make useful conversation here. Another useful thing I ask is how useful is art and craft to our society nowadays? Uh, we
1: would be a hollow shell if we didn't have that. Mm. If we did not have the ability to Think creatively, make creatively, uh, share that with others, and appreciate what others are sharing with us, uh, we'd be automatons and there would be no depth to us.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, with the, the emphasis on art and craft, would be, I, I agree, super important. Yep. What's the best decision you ever made?
1: In the field to pursue it.
0: Yeah. yeah, it could be anything, what?
1: Well, yeah. it could be to have kids. Yeah. yeah, okay. But in the field to pursue it. Yeah. Because uh, I never would have guessed I'd be where I am. Yeah. And the same thing, I can I can't foresee the future, so who knows what's out there? Yeah. But it, they're just opportunities.
0: Yeah, yeah. You talked about fork in the roads or um, crossroads. Yeah. the phrase yeah. used? What's the hardest decision you ever made?
1: I don't know. Um you know, maybe some of those crossroads I chose to go a certain path and something else would have happened that would have been equally uh satisfying, but just mm. in a different way. I just I just don't know.
0: Have you ever made a bad decision?
1: <laughs> probably. Probably more than just a bad decision. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you yeah. could you could rephrase that question going so what bad decisions do we made today? Today? I'm like,
0: no. I'm going to do that from now on? That's the way I'm going to do. It. I like it. So, what was, how many bad <laughs> list of top 5 yeah. bad oh decisions you made know, today? Oh. If you could go back and give advice to a young Dale, what would it be? Do you think he'd listen?
1: Maybe have more courage. Mm. You know, your question about it, uh, revolutionary.
0: Yeah. I and didn't ask it though. I hey. know you didn't. I'm was, going to was, ask I was, it. I was all ready for it. I was going, okay. <laughs> okay. We go right back to first. This is the very first question. Have you ever felt that you've been part of a revolution? No, that's changed. No, no. It's,
1: your question that you sent to me was Do you feel like you're a revolutionary?
0: Yeah. Have you ever felt that you've been? A revolutionary, that's what I yeah, change it yeah. and,
1: uh And the answer I kind of thought about when you sent the questions and really kind of chewed on, you know, the answer was no. I don't feel like I've ever been a part of that or been one. Maybe a rebel in certain things, but there's a big difference between those. And revolutionary is such a loaded sort of... Mm. It, it's a loaded word and a loaded topic that I'd say more of a change agent. And... That takes courage and conviction, and that's something that comes with time. And so going back to the question, what would you tell a young Dale is to have more courage. Because if you've got that courage, then maybe you can make some decisions quicker than you might without the conviction.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really... Do you think it Listen, Would you take it on board? I'm sorry? Would you take it on board? What's that? If you were given that advice, if oh, you could well, well, take a time travel trip and talk to yourself... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Bloody good. You know, as, as much
1: as you can take advice
0: yeah.
1: from anybody, it's a matter when you're receptive and when you're not. But yeah. if I was telling myself that and I was being told that by myself, I would hope I'd be receptive to that.
0: Yeah. A lot of people say, no, nah, wouldn't. But I think, I would hope that if I could go back in time and tell myself to, don't worry so much, which would be what I'd tell myself, <laughs> and here's the reasons why, I would hope that I would listen and take it on board and really strive to not worry so much.
1: The people who say, nah, I wouldn't do that, I, I think they're kidding themselves. And I don't know what level you'd be able to absorb that information. Mm. But because you're creative, because we are creatives, I think that we have our, our receptors are open a little bit more broadly than some others in maybe, our society?
0: Maybe. I th- it, there's also, when people answer questions, you know, there's there's some questions that you just glib, you know, it's, it, it, and this is not a criticism, it's just a normal way we have conversations. You know, you can get in-depth into a conversation and um, these questions are over here so that you and I can get yeah, into have the depth conversation. Yeah. and explore some of these things that make you tick in particular, mm. but how does somebody listening to that take that on board and have their lives improved and inspired and maybe not worry so much mm. or have more courage or however it is, you know, that they're listening to it, they take it on board. And the reason that I don't ask that question, the reason I've changed it, every person I've interviewed has asked this question, which was, have you ever felt that you're being a revolutionary? And nobody really could answer it, it just, you know, it was all about this notion of what a revolutionary or a revolution was or is or could be and Mm -hmm. most people, especially when it was right at the head of the series of questions, it was too early to even be creative about the notion of what a revolution or revolutionary could be and if it was at the end it was just too late to actually get involved in. I think it's a fascinating the word revolution. Have you ever felt that you've been part of a revolution? Yeah, I went down the park the other day and I got on a little wheelie jig and I revolved. <laughs> you know, how, you can answer it any way you like. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? It's,
1: but I, I think the way this came into the conversation worked really well. Because right. I don't think it's a dismissive question. I don't think the question the response I don't want
0: is, it to be either it just wasn't it just felt flat.
1: <laughs> well, but I, 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 maybe maybe it's the timing because yeah, once it's you start it so awesome you know, yeah. we're having what an hour and a half two hour conversation yeah, right now it's gone too. Yeah. So, in the course of the conversation, the engagement, the level of engagement Chains. that provides that kind of reflective thoughtful comments
0: that that's a good question. I reckon it's an awesome question, and it's. A, I'm going to keep it in. But what I did do in between when I sent you your questions and when I sent Dan his questions, which was a period of about a week, I suppose, I changed it to have you ever felt that you've been part of a revolution, mm-hmm. which I felt was more... <coughs> Accessible, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and still kind of talked to the same very broad topic of being revolutionary, or because you know fundamentally you are part of revolution because you're on the design to make a revolution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, knew, I knew that was coming. <laughs> like, have you ever felt you're part of it? Yeah, got you I'm talking to you, man. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah. So it's a really easy question to answer. I don't know why people uh, had so much trouble with it. Goddamn. Anyway, how can people get in touch with you and see your work? Well,
1: I have an updated website: www.dalebroholmonewordnocaps dot, uh, dot com. Uh, I'll just spell it out. Sure. You? Uh H O L M, dot com.
0: Yeah.
1: And it is outdated. I'm not
0: really. There's plenty of other things to do in the world. Yeah, there really
1: are, and I don't really care. Instagram accounts, man. I'm not even there, so. Well. I've got one. I'm just not doing anything (laughs) with it. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a follower, not a leader on
0: this one. Oh God. Yeah, we could have talked about Instagram and Facebook. Oh. I'm glad we didn't. because i have talked about it a lot with other people
1: yeah yeah, yeah. speaking of which, I, you know, listening to your interview with Peter Walker uh-huh. it was really interesting when you had that uh, exchange between YouTube as a teaching tool oh okay yeah 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 I almost fell out of my chair yeah right because I Fundamentally, just remind us all what they. So I, I, you asked a question about learning, different different ways of kind of learning, pedagogical Mm -hmm. influences, what have you, and Peter said, "Well, YouTube's a really fascinating tool because there's you can just learn so much from that," and, you know, my response is that's a bunch of horseshit. Yeah, right. And the reason being is that anybody becomes an expert on YouTube yep. and their authorities and if you have presence and you have just a way about you you can come across as that but you could be a nitwit yeah with regards to what you're trying to instruct on and people don't necessarily understand it so it can be downright
0: especially just, if you're just starting out and there's absolutely. a whole lot of information that yeah it's right but only in context and there is absolutely almost no way you can quiz that YouTube channel to fit your particular detail that you're working on. So, should you have a particular type of joint, for instance, in this particular type of structure, Absolutely. yeah. In that particular case that you're looking at, yeah, might work, but there might be alternatives that are better.
1: Yeah. Have you considered these factors? Why are you, you using that machine in this and manner? And that
0: is. M- talking about speed and efficiency it's going to be way quicker if you can ring up somebody or go to to somebody physically and i'm 100 percent convinced of that and i have been for such a long time and that's not to denigrate the youtube experience and to denigrate the use of youtube of which i use regularly for all sorts of things but I also think there is a real need for the one-on-one or the one-on-group situation where you can ask a physical question that relates directly to the problem that you're trying to solve at the particular time. And also, if you are going to... If you're only limited to YouTube, because some people have got geographical or remoteness or whatever, or, you know, there's just... Something's gone, something happens, whatever, it's your situation. You just can't ask... You can't ring him up now.
1: Well, you need to find a forum of some sort so that you can maybe engage with online so you can then maybe you're not doing face to face, but you yeah. can still ask the questions. Verify. But you have to have a level of understanding because if you're coming at this raw and you're eager to learn, but all of a sudden what you're watching isn't a good way to cut your hand off. That's <laughs> not that's not a good thing.
0: Yeah, time's so run on one.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of goobers out there who are doing it and that they should legitimately not have all their fingers. Uh And I find it distressing when that's the default. So Mm. community forum are fundamental to the individual, even if they want to work by themselves, because they need to have a means of understanding.
0: If it's all you've got, make sure you verify, look at it from very different aspects and... If you're looking at one person, check a look at another five and just make sure. If you can, get in touch with somebody who's physical and knows what they're talking about. Have we left anything out?
1: I think we've had a broad range here.
0: It's been good. Uh, Thank you, Adrian. Thank you. It's been a blast. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been great. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. I really appreciate your time too. Yeah. Yeah. Bloody good. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Designer Maker Revolution. I'm Adrian Potter. You can get hold of me on make at designermakerrevolution.com. Cheers.